All right, Exodus chapter 9 this evening. This is another one of those zoom-in passages, examining the 5th and 6th and 7th plagues a little more specifically. As I've mentioned, the, the themes being expressed in these first nine plagues are largely the same, so they are worth our attention, but at the same time, we don't want to get overly repetitive or overly redundant, if possible. So let's look to Exodus chapter 9. First, we're going to read God's holy word, and then we'll pray and ask for his help and blessing on our study of it together tonight. We'll read the whole of the chapter. Exodus chapter 9. This is God's holy word. Take heed how you hear it, friends. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time, saying, Tomorrow... The Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day, the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln, and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses threw it in the air, and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them, as the Lord had spoken to Moses. But the Lord said to, then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself, and on your servants, and on your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, About this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as has never been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now therefore send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter, for every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, 
so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire ran down to the earth. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as had never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field, in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. The flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in bud. But the wheat and the emmer were not struck down, for they are late in coming up. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hands to the Lord, and the thunder and the hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Amen. Thus far, God's holy and inerrant An inspired word to us tonight. May he be pleased to write its eternal truth on all of our hearts. Let's pray. Lord, yet again, we come before you as your word is spread before us on these pages and we seek illumination. We seek your wisdom. We seek your mind. And we ask that you would reveal yourself, especially to us, in your word. Grant us understanding tonight. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, by now, the basic pattern of the Exodus plagues is becoming familiar. Once again, the fifth plague begins with God's demand. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord God of the Hebrews says, Let my people go so that they may worship me. Verse 1. As much as Pharaoh might like to suppress the idea in their heads, the truth is Israel was not fundamentally Pharaoh's people, as much as he might like to persuade them otherwise. They are Yahweh's people. And God demanded their unconditional release so that they would be free to worship him, to serve him. This is the great paradigm of Exodus. God's people are liberated, redeemed, ransomed. Why? To worship. Saved unto worship. There's three plagues before us tonight in this chapter, and so three points by which to guide our study. God continues to prove himself as the true God. In all these plagues, God is laying waste to Egypt's pantheon, and he's doing it for the shame of Egypt, for the encouragement of his people Israel, and for the great glory of his name. So in these three plagues, we see the Holy Lord toppling sacred cows, verses 1 through 7, shaming unholy priests, verses 8 through 12, and then raining holy fire in verses 13 through 35. 
toppling sacred cows, shaming unholy priests, and raining holy fire. So first, let's think about that first plague, rather the the fifth plague, but the first plague in our text, toppling sacred cows. And once again, God's demand came with a dire warning. We see it there in verses 2 and 3, what's about to take place. Now notice that it's more than just cattle, isn't it? This plague not only infected cattle, but also horses, donkeys, camels, sheep, and goats. The plague was a deadly contagion. It was a lethal epidemic. The hand of the Lord will fall heavy with a plague, or kaved is the Hebrew that's used there. A a heavy plague upon you. That's the Hebrew word that's used, by the way, when referring to Pharaoh's hard heart. His hard heart turned kavod, or heavy. A heavy plague, a kaved plague, a heavy heart, a kavod heart. It's the same word kavod that's often translated as glory when referring to God and his splendor to describe the majestic heaviness of God's holy presence and his majestic splendor. And so it's a horrible irony that's playing out here. That Pharaoh, you see, wants glory. He wants weightiness, that kind of splendid heaviness. But instead he only gets shame. And the heaviness that he gets is of the worst kind. He wants the heaviness of glory. And it's as if God is saying, Pharaoh, you won't respect my heaviness. You won't respect my glory. And you won't let my people worship me very well. You want heaviness? I will lay heaviness upon your heart. A holy and wrathful judgment. In other words, the plague that is dealt upon Pharaoh and upon his land, the plague is as hard as Pharaoh's heart. It was a terrible pestilence that swept across Egypt like wildfire, infecting the beasts of burden on every farm until they fell down dead. It would have devastated their food supply, would have ruined farm labor, ruined transportation. Given Pharaoh's own livestock numbers, this plague would have been economically devastating. Notice also the language of verses 5 and 6 as he's setting out this plague and describing it here. And the Lord set a time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. It's a simple point, but one that's easy to overlook, almost a kind of throwaway line. But this point continues to be one of the main points of all Exodus over and over and over again. And the point is this, the Lord will make good on his promises. The Lord will make good on his promises. The Lord will keep his word of that, you can be sure. You think of what we've seen already as we think of the sweep of the Old Testament. I said I would increase your descendants, Abraham, and I did. I said I would liberate you from the house of slavery and bondage, Israel, and I will. I said I will bring you into the land, into the promised land, which I swore to give to your fathers, and I will. No word of mine shall fail, says the Lord. No word of mine shall fail. No promise of mine shall fall. And tucked away in a teeny little verse 5 and 6 here is just one more glorious iteration of that truth. My word, says God, my word is entirely trustworthy. It's entirely dependable. It is utterly reliable. What I say, it will happen. 
Don't you love the almost, the almost kindergarten level of simplicity that the text uses? There at the end of verse 5 into verse 6. Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day the Lord did this thing. Can I make it any clearer? I have no falling words, says the Lord. I have no falling words. I said that I would bring forth a seed from the woman who would one day bruise that serpent's head and that serpent would bruise his heel. I said that I would bring that seed, says the Lord. And then you, and then you, get, to, you get on into your New Testament, into passages like Romans 16, where Paul tells the Roman Christians, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of Jesus Christ will be with you. I love that line from the hymn. We love to sing it together. What more can he say than to you he hath said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? What more can he say? What more could he possibly say? The Lord keeps his word. He will surely do it. He will surely do it. That's for the shame (laughs) <laughs> the discouragement, there's, a, there's an understatement of Pharaoh, but it's for the glorious encouragement of God's people. Know this, the Lord has no falling words. He will surely keep his promises. But before we leave this particular plague, let's think a bit about the distinction God again makes between Israel and Egypt and, and a possible textual challenge we have to address. God first made this distinction in the fourth plague, when flies swarmed all over Egypt, everywhere except in Goshen, where the Israelites lived. And here again, in this fifth plague, Moses said there at verse 4, But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and that of Egypt, so that no animal belonging to the Israelites will die. And of course, that's exactly what happened. Verse 6, The next day the Lord did it. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one animal belonging to the Israelites died. Now, questions have sometimes been raised about the precise wording of verse 6. All of the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one animal belonging to the Israelites died. Literally, regarding the Hebrews animals in, the Hebrews animals in Goshen, it, it's rendered, not so much as one cow died. Now, some have pointed out that maybe there's a discrepancy here in this text, because in the seventh plague, and you might have noticed this as we were reading through it, Moses explicitly instructs the Egyptians to bring their livestock in out of the hail. You see that at chapter 9, verse 19, to get them out of harm's way. Well, obviously, if they still had animals to protect in the latter plague, then not all their livestock had been destroyed in this fifth plague. However, if we give a careful reading to verse 3 here in chapter 9, you'll notice that it limits the plague to livestock in the field. Verse 3, Behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field. The horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. In fact, the knowledge that we have of Egyptian agriculture supports this. More animals would be kept out in, put out in the pasture gradually, as the year went on, as, as flood waters that would come in the early, or late winter and early spring would gradually recede and they had more room in the fields for their flocks to be put out to pasture. We should also note that the Hebrew language, like so many other of their sister languages, other ancient Semitic languages, does not always speak with a hyperclinical precisionism in its grammar, perhaps as we may wish. 
Uh, I was joking about this with, uh, with Philip Chesser as he was asking this very question a couple of weeks ago, and I said the, the, the lack of the hyper-precisionism in Old Testament Hebrew, it may frustrate some of the engineers among us, and I can appreciate that, but that's just part of the reality of the Hebrew language. It doesn't take away from the inerrancy. Of course, God's word is inerrant, but just know that the Hebrews were much more comfortable with generalities and things like rounded numbers, for example, than perhaps we might be comfortable with when we prefer our hyper-precisionistic data. It's not unusual for the Hebrew word all to be used collectively rather than distributively. In other words, it means all kinds of animals rather than each and every one. Uh, One conservative linguistic scholar put it this way, all, the word all, is not to be taken in an absolute sense, but according to popular usage as denoting such a quantity that what remained was as nothing in comparison to what was destroyed. And according to verse 3, it must be entirely restricted to the cattle in the field. In the same way that you and I might say, I worked all day long. We do not usually mean literally all day long, not a literal 24 hours, but usually something from like 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. The expression employed in Scripture is a true expression, even if it's not a hyper-literalistic expression. And so it should not trouble us that the Egyptians had some livestock left over that was in harm's way for that upcoming seventh plague. But it's good for us to be careful, students of Scripture, to pay attention to those details and explore them and study them as they arise. Now, how about the theological angle? What's happening here in this fifth plague? The symbolism of the fifth plague is potent because many of the Egyptians' gods were depicted as livestock, especially of the cattle-type deities. Some Egyptians worshipped the bull, which they viewed as a fertility figure, the, the great breeding stock imbued with potency and vitality of life. Isis, the queen of the gods, was generally depicted with cow horns on her head, The goddess Hathor has the head of a cow. Her sacred function was to protect Pharaoh. So it's no small irony to see her image of this protector goddess of royal Pharaoh slain by the thousands, millions perhaps, throughout Egypt. By the way, it is not surprising that when the Israelites later decided to rebel against God in Exodus chapter 32, that they made a golden calf, a picture of a deity that made sense to them obviously in a sinful and idolatrous way, but it made sense to them considering that it was such a common imagery to which they were accustomed. We need a picture of a god. Well, we've been in Egypt for 400 years. What do their gods look like? Looks like a cow. Let's fashion a cow. And so they did uh, much much to their punishment and to their idolatrous sin. But because livestock were such an integral part of their religion, the Egyptians were devastated by God's plague. You, You can imagine it. Cattle lay dying on every farm and at every temple throughout these religious worship sites throughout Egypt. Farmers anxiously watch their cattle get sick and grow weak. Priests watching their holy cows stagger around, their god-deity cows staggering around, falling down dead. God was, in this sense, quite literally destroying their sacred cows. God was proving himself to the Egyptians on their own terms, you see exposing their false religion. And once again, the message was abundantly clear. These idols are worthless. The God of the Hebrews, the Lord God Almighty, and he alone reigns. So that's the first thing that we see from this passage. We see God toppling, quite literally, sacred cows. 
But then secondly, let's look at the plague, the sixth plague, the plague of boils. We see here the Lord shaming unholy priests. Now here things start to get immensely personal. You think of the previous plagues as they've come so far. Rivers of blood running, excuse me, ruining the economy, dehydrating a population, dead livestock, biting flies and gnats harassing the population. But here the misery is even further amplified. Now the plague is not mere creatures, insects harassing them, but it's a plague upon their very bodies. The Egyptians were covered with painful open sores from head to toe. Now, scholars have tried to deduce the precise disease that's in view here. The, the Hebrew word that's translated boils, shekin, it occurs at least a dozen times in the Old Testament, and it refers to a, a whole variety of different skin ailments. Uh, in Leviticus chapter 13, it seems to refer to leprosy. That might also work here in Exodus 9, especially since nothing is really ever said about the disease going away or being lifted. Leprosy is incurable. Others have suggested that the Egyptians maybe had smallpox. Uh, Perhaps the most interesting suggestion is that of skin anthrax. I didn't even know that was a thing, but apparently there is a thing. Skin anthrax, these painful swelling boils that eventually rupture and peel off. The thought is that perhaps the flies from the fourth plague would have been crawling in all of the dead livestock carcasses from the fifth plague, and they spread this pestilence and upon both man and beast. That's how it puts it there in verse 10. Maybe so, but whatever the disease was, whatever it was precisely in its scientific genus and species, it was undoubtedly miserable, no question about it. And do notice verse 10, the miraculous way this misery was produced. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh. And Moses threw it in the air, and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. I appreciated how one scholar pointed out that if someone says that Reformed Christians don't believe in transubstantiation or that we think it's not in the Bible, we can respond with, well, we do, but it's probably not the transubstantiation that you're thinking about. Here in verse 10, Moses finds a furnace, a kiln, and he scoops out some of the powdery black soot from it. He flings it into the air, and as the wind carries it along and turns it into this fine dust all throughout the land of Egypt, this dust lands on the skin of man and beast, and it is transubstantiated, if you like, transformed into these awful boils. And you'll notice again the distinction there in verse 11. These boils came upon the sorcerers and upon all the Egyptians, but not upon Israel. Do notice also in verse 11, these magicians, or as I I much rather like the, the New American Standard Bible, how it translates it, the soothsayer priests, in previous plagues, like the, uh, like the blood and the frogs, you remember they were able to replicate? They were able to imitate. They were able to imitate and copy the miracle that Moses did to some extent. Now, they could do nothing to alleviate the plague or to reverse the plague or take it away, but they could copy it. But then when we get to the third plague and the gnats, the magicians are unable to copy the miracle. And now here, with the boils, the magicians, you see there in that verse 11, the magicians could not stand, could not even stand before Moses because of the boils. The Lord continues to bring further shame and degradation upon them. 
this steady, progressive, downward trajectory, humiliating these priests and humiliating their false religion, showcasing their impotence from earlier, their inability to grant relief, to then their inability to even copy what Moses performed, and now an inability to even stand up in front of the appointed emissaries of the Lord, his commissioned prophets. They can't even muster the strength to stand up in, in front of their faces. The gods and goddesses of Egypt are again rendered impotent. The Egyptians, as you may know, were, were well known for their interest in medicine, particularly amongst ancient civilizations. They often looked to their religion for healing. And so this plague of the boils may have been targeting Amun-Ra, who was called a physician who heals. It may have been targeting another god, Thoth, the god of the healing arts. Perhaps Imhotep, the god of medicine. But the most common deity for dealing with disease was the god called Sekhmet. The priests of Sekhmet performed one of, or formed rather, formed one of the oldest medical guilds in the ancient world. It's worth noting that by throwing the ashes into the air, Moses was doing something that the Egyptian priests often did. It was, it was customary, it was common for, for Pharaoh's priests to take the ashes from their ritual sacrifices, whatever animal they may have just slain and burnt to a crisp. It was common for them to take the ashes from that ritual sacrifice and cast them into the air to be dispersed upon the people of Egypt as a sign of blessing. But notice, God took that ritual act and turned it on its head, and turned it into a curse. This is another one of God's wonderful and ironic blessed reversals that we see all over Exodus. And furthermore, the soot may well have come from a furnace for firing bricks, like the bricks that the Israelites would have baked as part of their slavery, no less. It's a glorious irony. John Currid writes this, The furnace then was a symbol of the oppression of the Hebrews. The sweat and the blood and the tears they were shedding to make bricks for their horrendous Egyptian overlords. Thus, the very soot made by the enslaved people was now to inflict punishment on their oppressors. Close quote. You see, God is making Israel's curse to be a blessing and was turning Egypt's blessing into a curse upon them. And just to add further insult to injury, if these men could not stand before Moses, they couldn't muster the strength to stand up in front of him, this disease most likely prevented the magicians from carrying out their religious duties, from carrying out their pagan rituals. You see, by denying access to their deities, by making them, by rendering them unable to perform their priestly duties and their priestly rituals and their priestly obligations, by denying access to their deities, God made a mockery of Pharaoh's magicians. Fascinatingly, the defeat was so complete, their, their humiliation was so absolute, that the book of Exodus never mentions them again. They disappear from the narrative from this point forward. God continues to dethrone the false deities of Egypt. Yet tragically, Pharaoh did not heed the warnings of Moses and Aaron. And as the Lord had again hardened his heart. So that's the second thing that we see in this chapter. First, toppling sacred cows. Then secondly, shaming unholy priests. And then thirdly, reigning holy fire. This plague 
This plague here, the seventh plague, is the beginning of the next sequence and the final sequence of plagues. Uh, the Bible seems to arrange the plagues in sequence of threes. Each sequence seems to be indicated uh, in the text, telling us that Moses gets up early in the morning and he goes to confront Pharaoh. That's how we seem to know when the next sequence of plagues begins, by this ritual. Up in the morning, off to confront Pharaoh as he goes down to the water. This account of this plague of hail, intermixed as it was with rain and fire and thunder, it's the longest so far. You'll notice it starts there at verse 13 and goes all the way to the end of the chapter at verse 35. The scripture seems to slow down a bit here, heightening the tension as we are, as we are inching forward to the great climax plague, the great judgment that comes in the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn. By now, Pharaoh should have gotten the message. He should have gotten the point. But he had not yet heeded God's demands. God here warns Pharaoh that he was about to receive the hardest blow yet. What God calls, verse 14, the full force of my plagues. Do notice that as God has been assaulting the pantheon of Egypt's deities, his plagues have generally clustered around the three main elements of Pharaoh's false gods. We've noted this before. Water gods, land gods, and now sky gods. These plagues have progressed from miseries of water, the blood upon the Nile, then land with bugs and miseries upon livestock and upon the people, and now the sky. Now an assault upon the sky deities as this fiery hail rains down from on high. Here in chapter 9, God explains with even greater clarity what he is up to in these plagues. See there in verse 14. This time, I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people, so you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. The precise wording of verse 14 is significant. Literally, woodenly, literally, in the Hebrew, what God said to Pharaoh was, I will send the full force of my plagues against your heart. Against your heart. Remember, The Egyptians viewed Pharaoh as a a living God on earth, and his heart, the the core of his being, was thought to be the foundation of society and and the source of all their progress as a people. The The entity, if you like, that brought balance and order out of chaos for the Egyptian kingdom. And here is the Lord Almighty setting his plagues against that order establishing heart, against that society controlling heart. Pharaoh will be made to know And all of Egypt will be made to know that God, and God alone, is Lord in all the earth. Verse 16, I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And again, down in verse 29, when God ends the plague, the thunder will stop, and there will be no more hail, so you may know that the earth is the Lord's. And you see the absolute folly? The the, the stupidity of Pharaoh's hardness and sin here. God even gives Pharaoh fair warning in verse 19 of what's about to take place. A fair heads up. Verse 21, Pharaoh and others pay it no heed. But notice verse 20. Some of the Egyptians are starting to get the hint. Some of them are taking notice. Now perhaps they could take their chances and cry out to Shu, the god of the atmosphere, or cry out to Newt, the sky goddess, or Tefnut, the goddess of moisture, or cry out to Seth, god of the wind and god of the storm. But some of Pharaoh's officials had seen enough, and they'd had enough. Whoever feared the word of the Lord, verse 20, whoever feared the word of the Lord 
among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. The Lord keeps unseating the impotent Egyptian deities and even whittling down the pomp of wicked Pharaoh. There's dissension in the ranks that Moses is highlighting here for us, such that even those of his own household are saying, Our boss is a fool. I'm putting my things under shelter. I don't know about what you're doing, but I've seen enough. I'm putting my livestock out of harm's way. Verse 25, it is absolutely devastating. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. And so Pharaoh begs, verses 27 and 28... I've sinned. Moses, plead with the Lord for me. Make it stop and I'll let you go and worship the Lord. Verse 30, Moses tells Pharaoh, I'll do it. I'll pray to the Lord for you. The plague will relent and you'll see that God is the Lord. But as for you and your servants, I know, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord. Yet again, tragically, what Pharaoh utters here is a cry of desperation, a plea of desperation, and a false confession, and a false repentance on Pharaoh's part. Verses 34 and 35 tell us that Pharaoh sinned again. He hardened his heart, he and his servants, and he did not let Israel go, just as God had said. Now, some of his servants may have truly feared the Lord. After all, in the end, when the Exodus event, the actual exiting from the kingdom of Egypt occurs, some Egyptians leave Egypt and they depart with the people of Israel, but many did not. There's those little agricultural details given there in verses 31 to 32. They may seem odd and out of place, but they tell us when this was all occurring, roughly the month of January, based on Egyptian harvest patterns. But it also lets us know that there were crops to come that would be available when the locusts would come and consume all that they do. So people might be wondering, well, if all the, all the crops were destroyed with the fiery hail, how did the locusts consume anything? Well, there were more crops yet to come. They were not yet in full blossom. So that little detail there helps us uh, in teasing these things out. But Pharaoh's reaction, representative as it was likely of many of his servants, it was tragic. It was remorse, but not repentance, not real repentance. Repentance is more than remorse. This is something many of us perhaps need to learn. Boys and girls, do you know the difference between remorse and real repentance? Repentance is more than just being sorry that you got caught for doing something wrong. It's more than just merely being sorry and having regret that something bad happened. That's what Pharaoh is experiencing. Repentance, like love, is more than a feeling. It's an action word. Repentance means sorrow for doing wrong, yes, but also changing your ways, amending your ways, making right that which you've done wrong, and then taking action, taking measures in order to stop doing the wrong thing that you did, turning away from sin. Pharaoh wasn't repentant. He didn't let the people go. And if you look back at way up at verse 7, you see that this is the sad, recurring theme of Pharaoh. Yet his heart was unyielding, And he would not let the people go. 
He is like the unbelieving one that's described off later on in the New Testament in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18. One who is darkened in understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to, remember, the hardening of their hearts. And from this springs that admonition later on in Hebrews 3, verse 12. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. We don't want a kind of crippling, obsessive self-analysis that renders us in this place where we doubt the goodness of God or doubt his mercy or, or, or seem to, to so cripple ourselves that we have a, a lack of an assurance of salvation. But nevertheless, taking stock of ourselves is a good thing. Spiritual inventory is a good thing. Examining ourselves to see whether we are in Christ, to use the language of the confession, is a good thing. Philip Ryken tells the story of years ago hearing a commencement address at Wheaton College. It's appropriate with all the commencements and graduations happening at this time of year. There was a speech given by a man named Dr. Hudson Armerding, and he exhorted the students at Wheaton thusly. Many Christian college graduates do extraordinarily well in college. They accumulate a considerable body of knowledge and demonstrate that they can think logically and perceptively. But it is still possible for them to be graduated with a hardened heart. Having all the information the disciples had, perhaps even observing supernatural things happen, and still determine not to accept the word of God as normative or to acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord. Close quote. Brothers and sisters, boys and girls, May it be that none of us, none of us like Pharaoh, would have a sinful, unbelieving heart, but rather that we would turn toward the living God. And if there is any doubt in you, if there is any doubt in you at all of what your status may be, cry out to God, even this very night, cry out to God that he would grant you a believing heart, and he will, he will, he will meet you in his mercy. May it be for all of us that the truth of Exodus 9 would resonate in our hearts, that we would know that there is none like the Lord, yea, even his Son, the risen Lord Jesus Christ. There is none like him in all the earth, and that we would know his power, and more than that, we would know him and love him so that his name may be proclaimed in all the earth. May it be so. May God bless Exodus chapter 9 to us tonight. Let's all pray. Oh, Father, we do bless you for this word. It is the word of the living God. It is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing joint from marrow. And we pray that as we have studied it, that it would have its way with us, that you would pierce us through and through, sundering that old man of sin away from the new man that is in Christ. Help us to treasure this word, to receive this word, this implanted word of truth unto the saving of our souls. And all for Christ's glory and our everlasting good, we ask it. In Jesus' name, amen.